0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture is from Mark 15, 1-15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God.
0: Thanks, Abby. Well, good morning again to you. If I, I didn't get to introduce myself to you earlier, my name is Stacy Croft. I'm the pastor here at uh, Christ Pro's Music Row, and I would love to get to know you at some point. If you ever have a moment um, to grab coffee or even a Zoom call, if you uh, if you would like to, you know, um, you know those words or phrases that we use over and over in our vernacular that we kind of have a sense of what they may mean and yet we kind of don't really know where they come from and they're kind of strange. Like even this morning, somebody was walking out after I printed my sermon and somebody saw me and they were like, break a leg. And you know, you kind (laughs) of... kind of like, okay, uh, you, you kind of know what that means, uh, especially if you're in the entertainment world or even not. I mean, you know, go do well, whatever. But we're kind of like, that's such a strange, if you just thought about it, that's just weird. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, you know, other things like w- one of the ones for me over the years is like watershed moment. You know, like, is there a watershed? But, you know, like, what is a watershed? You know, what does that really mean? A big pivotal moment. What are, where does that come from? You know, another one that's interesting that I've heard and, and Is um, the term kangaroo court? Uh, Some of you who are a part of uh, the legal world, I know we have even Abby herself is um, someone who is uh, uh, getting her degree across the street in uh, the law school of Andy. But kangaroo courts, you know, maybe you've heard this phrase. It's really a phrase that that talks about. Uh, Informal justice that usually brings about injustice. (laughs) It's usually kind of instead of uh, innocent until proven guilty, it's guilty uh, and and usually never proven innocent. It's kind of a court system that's informal that says, "Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and try you right here and there." Uh, Actually, what is interesting to me is where in the world you think about kangaroo. Like, can't you just say a wrong court? You know, where does kangaroo court come from? It's kind of a strange thing. So. I did some digging um, because I wanted to be informed of this. Maybe some of you already know this. But uh, kangaroo courts, the concept of them came out of the early 19th century, uh, particularly around, around the gold rush uh, in the United States. And the, the first time it was written, in, it was mentioned in an article uh, in 1853 uh, by somebody who talked about uh, kangaroo courts were regularly organized. And what they were were a judicial system where people were paid typically on how many how many uh, legal decisions they made. So these itinerant judges, so to speak, would go across America and find as many you know uh, disputes as they could, be it uh, informal or informal, and just preside and, and count justice right then and there and then move on, because they didn't care really what happened to the victim. They just knew, I only get paid for the number of these that I actually see. <laughs> so you can, you can imagine they would jump, kangaroo, there you go, kind of strange, but that's where it goes. They would jump from place to place to get as much money as they could out of doing as many of these cases as they could. And thus you get kangaroo court. Although it's strange, I was really hoping to look at, find something like actual kangaroos like fighting and they had, you know, but it has nothing to do with it at all. And yet those are the kind of things we use. You know, if there's anything that's been described about the trial of Jesus, it is that very thing. I think in our modern vernacular, we could put onto this passage a kangaroo court. Uh, We are finishing today the book of Mark. And uh, we're gonna move, uh, excited to move into the book, uh, The Life of Moses in Exodus uh, beginning next week. But as we finish this, Mark was written to a group of Christians who were suffering in Rome. And if there was any place there was injustice, oppression happening over people who proclaimed to follow a specific king, being Jesus, uh, it was in that place. It was in Rome. And, you know, at the center of this, and we're gonna actually recite it when we move to the communion, Apostles' Creed, we see Pilate's name. We see his name often, and we even say it anytime, and maybe you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, an ancient creed that's been used. Pilate suffered under Pontius Pilate. His name has been preserved for ages, but he presides in this as a kangaroo court, and that's exactly what it was. It was something of that nature. In fact, when he was described, one of the things that was said about the way that he handled uh, those around him and, and even the Jewish people was that he had constant murders in his under his presiding, yet without trial. That's what he was known for. But he wasn't just some evil guy who just presided. He was also a guy kind of middle management. He was kind of a middleman. He wanted to work his way up. He didn't wanna be there, he wanted to be in Rome. He was trying to keep the peace. And he was trying to even make sense. He was even calling them out on this kangaroo court that was happening. And yet, you know what, he didn't care enough because he knew, I just need to keep the peace so I can keep going and try and work my way up in this Roman system. But the one person in this whole thing that stands out is Jesus. And not just because we're at a church and we're talking about, but in this trial, it is a, a, it is a trial unlike any other. Because usually there's a defense, there's prosecution, there's this whole system. But this in this legit, ultimate, ancient kangaroo court, Jesus keeps his mouth closed. And it is amazing why. So we're gonna look at that. We're gonna look at, in the midst of the screaming of people who who a week before were saying Hosanna to the highest are now screaming crucify him with Pilate at the helm we're gonna look at two characteristics that mark this trial one is Jesus's silence and the other one is his innocence two things his silence and his innocence I don't know if you remember the movie um, <clears throat> uh, Castaway. it's one again it's one of those movies I have a, a kind of a host of movies that I've seen once. And it was so strong and powerful. I don't know if I could see it again, you know. Uh, Castaway was so good. Remember, it's Tom Hanks. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. He, he gets stranded on an island and you can watch the thing for sale. Sure. I'm not gonna ruin it for you. But one of the things that I remember distinctly about that movie is when, you know, most movies they have a soundtrack or they have uh, kind of music in the background that plays. This movie did nothing of the sort. In the beginning, when Tom Hanks' character gets stranded on this island and he is trying to make sense of life, there is no music, no background, and you're stuck with the silence and near, just the noise around him. And I'll tell you, that's the thing that was the loudest to me in that movie, is the silence. Because because of the silence, you hear everything else. Everything else is highlighted. And that is exactly what's going on in this trial. Even Pilate is amazed at his silence. Jesus silence and not defending himself. The whole council here, when you look at this uh, in the very beginning, they've been working and plotting and planning for weeks. And it says in verse 15, verse one, it says, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and delivered him. And they had all these accusations against him. And the only only way they could really pitch this to Pilate is by painting him in a corner and bringing just the right accusations. And Pilate's kind of seeing through this. They're like, this guy's messing everything up, he, all these accusations. He's like, You're even he says to Jesus, uh, in verse three it says, the chief priest accused him of many things. And yet, in no way does Jesus defend himself. There's no defense, no fighting. In fact, in, in another account of this, it draws out the, the fact that why he's not fighting. It says that there's no defense here. In verse 36, of John chapter 18, it says this, my kingdom is not when Pilate says, what, what have you done? What, what, why are these people bringing this against you? It says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my f- kingdom is not of this world. There's no defense. He keeps his mouth closed. You know, if there's a mark of, I would say, our modern culture with the fight for our individual rights, uh, with a mixture of anxiety and everything else, it is defensiveness. It's not a hard sell to say that we've seen defensiveness and fighting over the last Gosh, year and a half, two years, even exacerbated. Defensiveness is just a part of everything. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, reality TV gets its gasoline from this very thing. Why do we watch reality TV over and over? The same things. It's not a different show. The Bachelor, by the way, same show as last year. All those reality shows that continue on, that it's the same fuel and why is it over and over the same things of this is my truth, that's not your truth, I'm going to defend. There's this, this, these gears grinding of my rights, your rights in a defensive posture. I mean, it's not a far cry for me to think about this. I just thinking about it as a, a, a husband, uh, as, as a friend, when my wife Megan brings things when they are even true, which is, more than often, they always are. I still get defensive. Why do I? Because I want to paint myself in a light that is not even what I'm hearing. I want to try and make myself better. I want to try and feel better about what I think about me, even though I'm hearing the truth about what I'm doing or what I'm saying or how I'm acting. And that's what Pilate was used to. He was used to people coming. He was used to having to keep the peace. He hated it. He didn't want to be there. He was actually put there over and over, and especially in this time of year, he was considered the proconsul of Jerusalem on this festival of this high time, and every year he had to probably shake his head, going, when am I going to move up? I have to deal with all this ridiculous infighting. This is why Barabbas, mentioned later, is in jail. Because there's this constant fighting, this constant defensiveness. And here comes this man who's called the king of the Jews, and he will not even open his mouth towards any accusations towards him. Not even one. It's incredible. In Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, there's a description of someone. A description of someone that says, oppressed and afflicted he opens not his mouth. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears, he's silent, not even opened his mouth. This is the character of the Messiah, the character of Jesus. And what I think is amazing what he says to Pilate in John chapter 18, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, which if you're Pilate and you're going, okay. What Jesus is actually saying is, you're used to this world. And the way that this world works is we all fight for our rights. But my kingdom is not of this world and my character is not either. And that means the servants of the king are not to be like that either. It's very convicting. It's very convicting to me as someone who proclaims to be a Christian, you know, I see how defensive I can get. Convicting to see the fact that the characteristic of Jesus is to not even need to open his mouth. I mean, he has every defense on his side. Think about this. Let's let's actually lay the trial out for a second. They're bringing all these accusations against him about how his stance is towards Rome. But when he's asked about paying taxes to Rome, what is his answer? No, don't ever pay them. They're horrible. What does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When a Roman centurion runs to him and actually can't even go to him personally, he sends a servant, he says, I can't even go to you. Would you be willing to heal my servant? Because I recognize you. What does Jesus do? No, you're a part of the government, I can't do that. He heals him and he actually marvels at the Roman centurion's faith. Even right up to when he's arrested, Peter takes his sword, cuts off the servant of one of the Roman guards And what does Jesus do? Keep, go, fight. No, he even even here says in John that he healed the servant's ear and rebuked Peter himself. Jesus's stance isn't one of attack. It's not defensive. And if it's one of grace, it's a posture of healing. It's amazing to see that he didn't even have to open his mouth. What does that mark? When we know... What what is this characteristic of Jesus? This is him knowing so deeply, so ingrained in him that he is not insecure at all about his relationship to his father and his mission for us. And isn't that what it comes down to? When I experience defensiveness, be it with my wife or in any other way, I am so deeply insecure that am I really kept? Even though I know the truth may be there, it may be helpful, I am so deeply unsure or uncertain. And isn't that where we come from? And Jesus stands firm, not at all shaken, not at all moved, because his kingdom is not of this world. And he wants us, his servants, to believe the same. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully in that quick phrase. He said, he said, If you really want to be effective in this world, the most effective Christians in this world are the people who have their mind set on the one that's next. Not that that we avoid this world, not that we're defensive and we demand this world, but that we know where it's headed, and so that we can hopefully live in a posture that's not defensive, but one that's certain because we know we're loved. Why is it that Christians act so defensive? And that's me. When we come out of church and our whole point is to say, we're, you're not having to try, this is the confession, right? The whole point of Christianity is you don't have to try and be loved, but that you are. What would it do to us to, to engage every part of this world that points the finger at us for being a Christian or any other part of our life, any part of our character and and say, instead of, no, I'm not that way, say, you don't know the half of it. A humble posture of silence, knowing how loved we are and to love this world that way because we've been loved that way. We've been cherished that way. This is why Jesus in Mark 8 the very middle, when they kind of recognize that Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're, you're the one, right? He says, yes. And on this rock, I will build my church. And he then says something so insanely amazing. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when Jesus said that, I think for many of us, it can be a defensive posture. Like, okay, we got to make sure we're confessing. we are got to make sure we're going to church. we are got to make sure we're doing all. But you know what Jesus is actually saying to his disciples? The gates of hell will not prevail against it because the church is not in a defensive posture. It's one in consistent movement forward. It means we're supposed to be on the offense. Not offensive, but offense, moving forward with confidence. Knowing that it's not all about us. And I'll tell you what, when I'm defensive, (laughs) take it from me. I'm making it all about me. Whether it be in my marriage, friendships, relationship, church, anything about it. And you know exactly what I mean. When we are defensive, we're trying to make ourselves something that we already are. We're loved in him. We're his What would it be like for us to take up that characteristic of what we see a powerful savior doing? You know, it's incredible because this passage is amazing. It highlights not just Jesus' silence that is so palpable, but his innocence. You know, they, in this kangaroo court, as they shout, crucify him, they shout the verdict and they shout it so loud that they're getting Pilate painted in a corner. Because they realized that if if they can push him and they first bring the the argument that he's claiming king of the Jews, well, one of Pilate's tenets, and one reason they hated Pilate is different than any other proconsul before him. He brought in Roman standards of Emperor Tiberius and he put them up everywhere. And if there was something you did not do, it was you did not claim to be any authority or any king in the face of Tiberius, not to mention any worship diverted from him. And they hated Pilate because Pilate was trying, you know know what he was doing? He was setting up, he was saying, oh, I'll put up your face everywhere. And that way, maybe I can work my way up and get to Rome. Crucify him. And they painted Pilate in a corner because he knew also, gosh, if I let this thing get out of hand, fine, I'll hand him over. And in another account, it talks about, Pilate washing his hands, saying, His blood is on your hands. But we all know that Pilate was just saying, I'm, I don't want to deal with this. You deal with it. His innocence is there, and yet it's this huge part of authority. Who's, author- who, who's really standing? And you know, the more I studied and read of Pilate, the more I was amazed at his, his different facets of his character. And how much he's just very much like a lot of people today, just wanting to work our way up. Jesus is somewhere in the mix. We don't want it to get too out of hand. This was not a position he wanted to be in, but he was gonna deal with it. But he needed to keep the peace. He needed to keep the peace. Look, Jesus, that's great. You can be a king. He was trying to assess, is this guy really a threat to me or any of Rome? And as soon as he saw through, I mean, let's give Pilate a little credit here. He's not just being a bully. He's actually the only one in this passage who is saying, this guy is innocent, really. Really? Out of necessity, not out of his belief towards him, he's the only one saying he's innocent and trying to get him freed. And yet, Jesus in John 18, in other passages, talks about, I No one takes my life, I only lay it down on my own accord. There's even this passage, it's been it stuck in my brain for ages that there's this. This line where, where Pilate looks at him, because in John, he says, Don't you know, in John 19, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to set you free? And Jesus says, You know what? You would have no power except for that which is given to you by my Father in heaven. Wow. That's real authority. You know, um, C.S. Lewis again said this, and he talked about it. God in the dock. Uh, I don't know if you've read this essay before. God in the dock is is one of his big. uh, There's a whole collection of essays, but this one in particular. The dock is what they say in um, Across the Pond, if you will, about uh, the court system. And so Lewis was saying that how modern man typically treats God. He says, in the position of man being in the position of judge. And God in the dock, meaning he is uh, the one being judged. Lewis says this, he's quite a kindly judge, referring to us as man. If God should have a reasonable defense of being a God who permits war or poverty or disease, we're willing to listen. But the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You know, I heard one philosopher, thinker uh, today mention one of the greatest images that, that we probably have of what our American culture thinks of God is like a golden retriever. He's loyal, he's precious, he's there. When we open the, oh, he greets us. I mean, there is just nothing but love there. But There's no real authoritative work. There's no real power in it. There's nothing there really that, that, that leans into our life. And yet this is the account that is given. No one has the power to take Jesus's life. What is he doing? He's the kind of king that puts himself in the position of taking all the guilt and leaving all the innocence. I think what is incredible is there's one figure in this we hear nothing really about him other than his name is Barabbas. And this passage reverses everything else we know about religion and Christianity. Most of the time, I think what we believe as the golden retriever, as the modern man of God, we think that God is with our guilt, when we feel guilt or we have guilt in our life, that we think God just kind of deals with it. We just go to him and he teaches us how to move it around. But this passage is saying something different and particularly with Barabbas, Jesus is being accused of every single thing that Barabbas is guilty for and yet is completely innocent. There's not in one way that the shred, that they cry, crucify Jesus and release Barabbas at the same time that the one who is being released is the guilty one and the one who's being crucified is the complete innocent one. I remember preaching in, I've gotten a, a, the opportunity to, to do some prison ministry over a number of years. And a few years ago, I was able to uh, conduct a service in a prison here in, in Nashville, just outside. <clears throat> and it was one of the most incredible experiences because if you think about Uh, and some of you may have experienced this, being in in prison yourself or even doing prison ministry, but there's nothing like talking to a group of prisoners when you're there who they wake up day after day and instead of being able to shift their guilt around or avoid it with work or do something else to numb it, they wake up and they're in the same place doing the same thing, reminded of why they're there every single day moment of every single day. A prison reminds you of that. A prison shows you that you are guilty whether you say, continue to say that you are or not. And yes, there are people who have been wrongly imprisoned, but it still wait, puts you in that place and position of saying you're guilty. And you can think otherwise, but every one of these walls and every one of these guards and every one of these people around you is reminding you that you are guilty. There's no way out. And I remember preaching there and one of the prisoners saying to a group of us, he said, I feel really sad for people because there are a lot of people outside of these walls that are a lot less free than me. And what he was saying has continued to stick in my brain because when I think about the ways that I think I'm so free, I don't have to deal with that, waking up that way, but you know, we know the reality. We all hold our guilt, we all have it. We're all faced with it. We're all faced with what we've, the decisions we made this last week, the way we spoke to our spouse, the way we handled our children, the way that we walked and approached our jobs, the way we look at our computer screens, the way that we handle and manage our finances, all the ways that we know we are guilty, but we can maybe walk away and maybe not have to face it over and over. But then sometimes we wake up over and over and we experience it. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is taking on every, every, part of our guilt in order that we may receive his innocence. He's not coming to us to say, hey, I can make you feel better about your guilt. He's not about that. That's not his business. It's just to make you feel better. He's actually taking on your guilt. And I think that sometimes we forget that and, 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 and maybe even moving to, to, to an edge of difficulty for our minds to wrap around that he is taking on the guilt of what we have done and will do in order that we may be declared innocent. Barabbas was declared guilty of everything that was put on Jesus so that they could say crucify him. And he yet not opened his mouth. Why in the world? Because that's the thing that's really troubling for me and for you. It's not just the guilt, it's the fact that why wouldn't Jesus open his mouth? Because we think that there's a God that if we really face him and we really hold our guilt out, that he's gonna say, yeah, you're guilty. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, I can't believe you did that. But what does Jesus do in the face of your guilt and mine? He opens not his mouth. And we are free. There's not an amount, as much as that prisoner beautifully understood it, way better than I feel like I do as your pastor many times, that there are a, many of us that are a lot less free because we don't realize the innocent declaration that is on us. Look, this, this table is a mark of this. I think we need to understand this is a table that reminds us of the one who kept his mouth closed. you know why he didn't defend himself? Because he was defending us. He was defending us of all the ways we could be defensive. This is why we can't come to this table and say, Yeah, but because our innocence has to be only in him. This table reminds us of the servant who was willing to lay his life down. He took this up willingly for you and I, he did this willingly. This table shows us the power of his innocence, that you're about to taste your innocence. That when you actually taste the bread and juice, you're tasting your literal innocence that you can live out of. This is why Christians should transform this world because we're thinking of the next. Because we know how loved we are in him. There's no, do you feel innocent? You are. Don't operate from that. Let your, there are many times you're gonna not feel close to God, but you know what never changes? There are many times that, that, you know, in any relationship, you don't feel close to somebody, but what always comes back to you? That you are. That you're loved. I'll tell you one of the greatest images I remember of a few weeks ago when our home went through all sorts of things, was when I was sitting there texting one of my best friends and just telling him, man, my home has so much water. I don't know, you know, no, no, no. I turn around and he's already walking through the water, knee high to me. Then I see some of you pulling up in trucks through that water and I just crumbled <laughs> because what I'm forced to realize is it's not about what I can do, it's about Just you showing up and loving. Jesus, there's not something you have to do. You're declared innocent. You're declared loved. You are in him. Taste that in him. And don't come to this table in any other defense other than his.